This is Film Tank. Tank, tank, tank. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You know, we're sitting here like a couple of regular fellas. We're going to make film history. Can you say that again? Just the way you say it. Baby, it's time to lose their head. They won't know what they're looking at or why they like it, but they'll know they want it. Welcome in to episode 203 of Film Tank. I know, we've made it to 203. <laughs> Who are you talking to? I'm glad Nobody you said anything. I'm glad you asked, Nicholas. We are talking amongst ourselves, and we, being myself, Alex Diekman. Um, I just want to correct you really quick, um, but last week we established that my name is Tucson Egan. Okay. And I'm just a little upset that the continuity is being severed here. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, Nicholas. Did you want to say something? Hi. Oh, hey. Have you watched any pornos recently? <laughs> nope, not this week. Aww. Check in next week. Are you okay? Yep, doing great. I was gonna say that's like a need to live type thing. Yep. So it's it's almost as if I'm not Nick. Oh, buddy. Hold my hand. Ow. Wow. Hello. Yeah, so uh, this crew here is back at it again yep. for the 203rd time. Yeah. And uh, Don't call it a comeback. Okay. Are we in, like, the, like, we can't get divorced, like, hump? You know, like, at a certain point, like, now we have to raise our children and like they have to be in college before we can even think about. Yeah, it does. Ways. It does feel like at some point we're going to start trying on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's going to happen one of these days. I don't know when it's going to be. I hey, you know what? We got a new theme song. That's I step believe one. it's going to happen, man. It's going to happen. Yeah, someday. Someday we're going to do great. And then, and then someday you turn around and your children are all grown up, and you're like, "What the fuck happened?" Yeah, yeah. we wasted our lives. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, we're already there, so that's fine. Anyway. No, our little film tank babies. <laughs> so we are going to take a trip in the time machine and go back to do a classic film for the first time in a little while. And I Hold on, I'm pretending that I'm uh, Guy Pierce in the very bad H.G. Wells adaptation of The Time Machine. <laughs> it was him in that movie, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, it was, and him and Samantha Mumba. For some reason, I thought that was Hugh Jackman. Remember when that was a thing? She was in that, and she was in uh, Mission Impossible 2, I think. Oof. I think. I don't remember uh, 2. She had the one hit song, mm. but I forgot what that song was. But mm. I listened to it all the time. Oh. Well, one of our goals uh, for you know, the foreseeable film, for Film Tank, but also for the foreseeable future. Yeah, how are future? your goals coming along, by the way? Oh, I was actually thinking about that <laughs> earlier oh, this wow. week. I you have, haven't done shit. I have not. I haven't so done that, shit either. That might wow. that might veer into a 2020 goal. We'll yeah, see. Okay. we're going to move that to 2020. 
I'm almost done with one of mine. I'm proud of it. But you. I haven't touched the other one. I was going to say. But at least I'm almost done with one of them. That's yeah. true. But you also, it was a little bit of low-hanging fruit for your one. Okay, you know what? I'm not going to have a lot of time to fruit. do that. Anyways, trying to get where I was going. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. One of our goals this, uh, you know, once we started past, we passed the 200 episode threshold, mm-hmm. was to do more films that were of the classic variety and not necessarily yeah. like... What else is what? What's coming out this week? Well, I well, was gonna say not not what's coming out this week, and also not necessarily just like Academy Award winners. Or yeah, like, like I think it's one thing we're we're always gonna do contemporary in the theater movies because mm-hmm. that's just why not? That's yeah. the cultural conversation. But I saw that we had a tendency uh, when we had the off week to choose a film that wasn't in theater. 99% of the time, all three of us would choose a film that was made after the oldest one on the podcast was born. Mm-hmm. So I just thought as an initiative, it would be fun to do, not to out your age here, but essentially films that came out before the late 80s. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, at the very late, and now we could do anything we want to do. It's not some kind of hard and fast rule. And after that, we're going to follow it up with two episodes that are in the theater. Yeah. But <laughs> at least, you know, okay. we're trying. Yeah. Well, I think I think it'll be good to maybe, I don't know about do like an even split, but like have yeah. it... Uh, you know, go back and do older films a little more often. At least, I was going to say, at least for every two or three r- recent films, we could do one, you mm-hmm. know, and whatever. But some of our, I think, best episodes are things like A Star is Born from the 50s. That is a good episode. Yeah, and, um, you know, even though it was a weird era for us, but I do look back fondly on the conversation mm-hmm. we had. <laughs> On the conversation. About the conversation. Well, yeah. when we was, started... When we just started out. It did, started, but that was... I mean, we had Kenny, and all yeah. four of us somehow watched that movie, which I'm still mm-hmm. kind of like in a... I don't know if it's crazy. Yeah. Well, we started... When we started the podcast, This we had this goal about alternating between new movies yeah, and like old movies. Yeah, some kind of democratic... And that kind of went by the wayside pretty yeah. early. That's yeah. fine. Yeah. So, anyways... Back to doing some older films, and we have one on this very episode, Mm -hmm. which is a very early Martin Scorsese film, which is 1973's Mean Streets. Uh, Definitely in the prime of young, long-haired, huge, black-eyebrow Martin Scorsese when either he was in the midst or about to start his very uh, well-known cocaine addiction. (laughs) Yeah. So well known, I didn't know about it until you also this. didn't know no that Christmas vacation. Was yep, I was gonna. Yeah. You know what? If you're gonna hold that over my head, oh, we will forever, forever. Well, I don't give a fuck. I, I just care. wish you were more embedded in white culture. I, fuck off, fuck off. Look, there's a black police officer in that movie. Look, she's so nice. Too. Look, in the '90s, you grew up, and there was like two households, and like there's. Okay, you either had, like, Little Rascals or you had The Sandlot, okay? And I was I a Little both. Rascals. <laughs> Fuck you. I was white, so I had everything. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, we've talked about Tucson. His, oh, his, shit. His community television before. Fuck you. I didn't have a community television. <laughs> uh, so Mean Streets uh, centers around a small-time hood who aspires to work his way up the ranks of a local mob, which, oh man, I don't really know if that is the plot line at all. Which one is the hood? That's Charlie, but... Charlie. Maybe that... 
maybe the use I mean, of those that are word the does not translate to the contemporary use of that word. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. that's a it's an almost anachronistic way of explaining something slightly more straightforward. Right. Yeah, I, w- I would say first time ever watching this film. Him working his way up through the mob is definitely not what's really the main story. Yeah, somebody's here. missing the point. Yeah, although you know what's interesting to think about though, and I know this summary was probably written way after that film was actually released, right. but this came out before something like The Godfather. So, mm. in a lot of ways, the template for what the mafia is, especially as portrayed in uh, visual media, mm-hmm. had not been set yet. So. For a lot of people, I'm guessing when they first saw this, uh, when it came out, this would have been maybe, even if it was not subtle, but uh, unspoken, this would have been like blatantly. When like, did Godfather come out? 74? I was going to say, I five, thought it was 76. Six, but that's, uh, oh, 72, so it was actually before. Hey, so uh, you know everything I just said? <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. Just forget it. Yeah, It's fine. It's a good try. 72? Yeah. Wow. So it's right in the same ballpark. I was going to say, they were so this is actually, being shot at the same time. I was going to say, this is actually kind of right in the coattails of The Godfather. So I could see that with that finale. Yeah. So the two main uh, people here that go back to watching uh, ended up... <laughs> if, you were t- if you were Nick, you would. True. Uh, the two main uh, characters, two main actors here that went on to have uh, larger careers, one of them becoming an all-time classic uh, in Hollywood, are Robert De Niro and Harvey Keitel, uh, who play basically the two main characters throughout the film, although definitely Harvey Keitel's character of Charlie is our main protagonist in this feature. So Martin Scorsese, uh, again, made a lot of gangster-ish films uh, in his career. We've talked about uh, quite a few times about that he has another film coming out called The Irishman later this year, which who knows what the fuck that's going to be. That just looks like... Okay, I'm going to try to be nice, Mm -hmm. um, but it kind (laughs) of looks like dog shit. Let's just be honest. The more time has gone on, the more it's becoming very... I'm trying to... If I can't say something nice, at least I want to say it in a nice way. It's becoming apparent. (laughs) In a nice tone. It's becoming apparent that it's not going to be good. Yeah. But I'm I'm, I'm in that weird, like, want it to succeed. Like, I'm kind of Charlie, where, like, I want... You're going to give it so many chances. I know it's not going to work out, but, like, I just want to keep convincing You make up for your sins in the streets. You make it up by giving the Irishman a chance. You might get killed for it. So, Uh, at least get my my hand shut up. It's fine. That's probably his jack-off thing, too. But uh, this was before some of his classic films of that era, like Taxi Driver and Raging Bull. Um, But at the same time, this is really his announcement to a lot of film people and also just the general audiences of that time of who Martin Scorsese was. It's definitely his first true crime epic, so to speak. And uh, it was my first time ever seeing it, so I'm I'm excited because I'm a huge fan. I'm obviously a huge fan of modern Scorsese, so uh, definitely interesting to see something that is definitely uh, different. Um, I guess I'll just go ahead and just give my initial thoughts. I think this film's pretty good. And I don't think it's in the same quality ballpark as the other films that I really love of his. 
Uh, but at the same time, I really enjoy a lot of the rawness of this film because like the refined storytelling and conversations and also filmmaking that we see in his later films uh, clearly was built over time. It was not just a, you know, drop and go type thing, which I mean, that's just the way it is. And I feel like as time has gone on, the longer somebody is in the game, the more clear it's going to become with uh, all the advances in technology and all the different things that you learn as a filmmaker, especially a filmmaker of the caliber of somebody like Martin Scorsese. So, I mean, I think you could easily compare this to something like Paul Thomas Anderson's Heart Eight in terms of it being a very good first film, but also to, like, if you look back on it, you could definitely see that they just grew from where that started. You see the foundation very clearly in, I would say, both those films Mm -hmm. where, like in Mean Streets, you can almost certain shots echo movies he will make 20 years later. Oh, yeah. In a very fascinating way, not in a repeat, just repeating himself. Yeah, the opening scene in the bar, which scenes in bars are very prevalent in most Scorsese gangster films, if not just his regular films. Um, But the opening scene in the bar where Robert De Niro's very brash character is being carried in he shows up to the bar without any pants on he's kind of flamboyant yeah he's flamboyantly walking through like waving his arms up and down i made the comment i'm like this guy is dead like he is there's no way he's making it to the end of this movie and i thought that harvey Keitel was going to be the one who kills him because that would seem to be the natural progression of him not being able to handle his terrible behavior and he's only able to vouch for him for so long or whatever and it didn't end up being that but at the same time, uh, that's just a very Scorsese type character. You know, somebody like name any of the characters that Joe Pesci played. Yeah. I was going to say it was fun to see Robert in the kind of flip side of what yeah. he would go on to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that part of it was was good, and I think I'm totally in agreement with you, Nick, in terms of like laying the groundwork for for his style. I would say. I mean, the Rolling Stone songs uh, and the just the way that the music was played throughout. Um, you could definitely tell that this film was edited a lot differently than his modern films have been. I mean, he's been working with Thelma Schumacher for yeah, since a the long time. As far as I thought. Well, or... it, even if she did do this film, which I don't yeah. know, that style has not been made yet like they're the quick cuts the oh no yeah yeah it's just it just was not there so uh definitely different to see that another thing here that made it a i don't want to say difficult to watch because it, it was fine but um watching a film of his and having the uh dialogue that's happening be so different from what the actors on screen are saying is very weird to see just because no seeing kind of the way his actors perform and the perfect editing that he has usually throughout his films it's just a different time uh, in the early 70s so they probably weren't able to sync up everything but it was it was like there was a couple of times where it was like a bad dub job was being done. As someone who's yeah. uh, been consistently watching movies from this era and in New York City, uh, that in and of itself is a production and logistic nightmare to record dialogue on an actual live New York street. So, yeah, that's, I'm not saying you're 
wrong or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Like, but that was prevalent in anything from that was made on a shoestring budget to something that even had at least a coin in his pocket like this. Yeah. Um. So I, you're absolutely right in that. It's very noticeable uh, at times, but that's also kind of that was part for the course for that era. I will just say to add because I looked it up just to make sure. Ironically, before I even looked it up, I was going to say. His very first, his debut film, which is Who's That Knocking at My Door, which was Harvey Keitel's also first film, mm-hmm. is more edited like uh, his later film, where there's a lot of quick cuts and whatnot and mm-hmm. montage style. Uh, apparently, Thelma Schoonmaker worked on that movie and most movies since then, but not Mean Streets. So I, I think that's very interesting because it shows, too. I was going to say, I feel like it, it's so, yeah. very clear. Yeah, um, they like they have been together since the very beginning, but uh, yeah. in this one, there is a slightly slower pace in the uh, sequence. We, we just watched something recently. The Snowman that she randomly edited. Did she? Martin made her do that? Yeah. <laughs> Oh boy, I remember him. I remember that he produced it, but I yeah. forgot that she. No, I remember Ooh. remember seeing her in the opening credits, and then there were oh a couple. My. There were a couple classic Scorsese cuts early in that film, and I was like, "Oh boy, I can see why she was hired." Yeah, gotta that's... try to slap as much lipstick on this pig as we can. So, uh, just some more small thoughts before I pass it on to whichever one of you guys want to go next, mm-hmm. but. Uh, I thought the acting here was actually quite good. Uh, Robert De Niro playing this super brash, broish, angry, uh, you know, Italian type character. I mean, the, these are the kind of characters that he really did not go on to play, but it was clear that like he took something from this role into some moments he had later. Because like when he has some crazy moments in his later films. Like, you could see some of this coming out in some of his facial movements and some of his actions, um, even though he plays that really kind of straight-faced, serious gangster in most of his, you know, classic films that he's Mm. in. uh, You could still see this era of him popping out in that, which um, is very interesting to see how he developed as a performer throughout his career, because this is a role that I would say is pretty outside what he was doing for a lot of his earlier roles. I mean, even if he has some of this happening in Taxi Driver and also to Raging Bull, I feel like it's even more, I don't want to say toned down. This is very raw. Like, I feel yeah. like you can you can definitely see the capacity for a great actor in him and that he it's a good performance. I think it's a, a great performance on par with like, you know, what you come to expect from him like later on in his work. But yeah, definitely he uh he's definitely sort of just honing his craft at this point in his career and just sort of like chiseling away at it. I would say it's very evident that it's a good performance based on the fact that Toussaint was very vocally annoyed with his character. Oh, yeah, I fucking hate it. Which usually only happens when you're actually liking at least what the person is doing. Yeah, I like what the person is doing. Like, they have enough of a personality that they're memorable enough that they just piss the shit out of me. Like, where I I actually empathize with uh, uh, Charlie, and I'm just like, man, he's got to keep on, like dealing with this guy's shit he's like shooting his gun off on the middle of fucking night throwing like yeah. firecrackers and shit what the fuck is this guy bugs bunny or some bullshit god i hate him so much uh and then the last thing i'll say is that i feel like there's 
a lot happening in that really bizarre pool hall scene where they just start all beating the shit out of each other. Yeah. Um, that's a really great scene because of the way it ends where they play, pay off the police officers who come to like break it up. And suddenly that creates like this sort of like solidarity of like, Oh, we didn't get like momentarily. Yeah. Momentarily. Yeah. Momentarily. Yeah. yeah. Um, but just how that spirals out of control. But like, you know, in a film like this, you would just assume that, like, there's going to be guns and knives and crazy shit. But no, like, this is just another Wednesday, and all these guys are just beating the shit out of each other because that's just what you do uh, in in this era, at least uh, on yeah. film. So. They didn't have Xbox. They yeah. They have cell phones. There's yeah. a lot of scenes in this movie where I had the thought in my head, ah, boys. Like right, right. there's like between something like that because they're just fighting with like their fucking palms and whatnot, mm-hmm. and or like uh, Harvey Keitel and uh, Robert De Niro uh, play fighting with the garbage cans and mm-hmm. whatnot. It, right. It's a weirdly playful violence uh, for Scorsese, who's later on would go on to do very harsh violence. Mm-hmm. But it does uh, obviously punitive violence turn around later in the film. Uh, as as the walk off moment of this film is just the crescendo of all the shit that's been building really the entire film. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, overall pretty solid film. Uh, definitely not his best work in my opinion, but uh, glad I was able to see it. Yeah, wants to go next. I'll go next. Already? Um, yeah, I like uh, Martin Scorsese films. I'm not sure if I'm as big of a, uh, a Scorseseite. As uh, my other two co-hosts here, I enjoy Goodfellas. Goodfellas is the first like Scorsese film I can remember watching, and I enjoy Casino, and I enjoy uh, Wolf of Wall Street. Silence, uh, very, very different film. Uh, you like Shutter Island too, right? I do like Shutter Island. You see, That's I've seen I've too. seen more Scorsese films that I can remember, but the if you departed. Holy fucking shit! You, you like the Aviator too, right? Holy fucking shit! This is what is uh, this? What this? Flubber. <laughs> don't, don't. That's not. Don't, 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 fucking, don't listen to Martin. I, I know you, that's not a Martin. You. Even know you're yourself. good. Yeah. No, you're not. That's not <laughs> don't good. Look at me, pal. I gotta live with him. Shut the fuck up. Um, yeah. This is the thing with the uh, with Martin Scorsese <laughs> films. Like I, I have seen so many of them. I've seen more than I can remember, and yet I, if you tell me them, I usually enjoy them. It's like they're just sort of the films that have seeped into the background where like I know this this director and I know enough about him that if I'm going to see a film that he's directed, then it will most likely either be a classic or at the very least very good. Like that's just the the kind of director that he is. And that's how I feel about Mean Streets, you know. This is like probably one of his earliest like breakout Works that you told me before, Nick. I, this is probably his breakout role. Yeah, his, his breakout movie. like directorial yeah. like effort. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I loved all the performances here. Uh, Robert De Niro is great. Uh, is it Harvey Keitel? Mm-hmm. Harvey Keitel. I liked him a lot. I actually <laughs> confused him uh, in the first scene, which I will defend for the fact that I could not like see his full profile of his face. I thought it was Dustin Hoffman. <laughs> But it wasn't. Shut the fuck up. It would have been interesting to have Dustin Hoffman in this film. It would have been. Playing yeah. that role. Yeah, but Harvey you. Keitel was really good in this. I uh, I liked this character of Charlie a lot. Just trying to... And, and uh, you know, I liked what his motivations were in this in this story. That he's just this, you know, young hood 
as as <laughs> as IMDb would put it, you know, working for his uncle Giovanni, basically shaking down people for money, while at the same time he's wrestling with this sort of like internal struggle of like, you know, this is what I do for my job and this is where my soul is sort of like pulling me. He's like he's a good old Catholic boy and he's just trying to find a way to repent and to um, do right by himself, by his community, by his family in the way that he can, because the way that what he's doing right now is the only thing that he knows how to do. And so how do you, how do you try to do right in that sort of situation? And the way that he finds at least a, an opportunity for repentance is taking care of Johnny boy, who is played by Robert De Niro, who, like I mentioned before, is an absolute piece of shit. Um, but he still tries to like take on that burden just because, you know, he's just trying to do the right thing. Just do the right thing. Yeah, he gets, he gets literally, not literally, sorry. He gets, he gets figuratively peed on by Robert De Niro. Oh yeah. In that last bar Just shy, scene. just shy of, of literally peed on <laughs> because. Literally. That's, that's, I really wish he would have said that, that, but also not even corrected it. Yeah. That's the kind of guy that Johnny Boy is though. He literally like, got peed on. Like he. At one point someone sh- uh, spits on somebody's shoe. Yeah. Yeah, you know, but that that final uh, that final bar scene when he, uh, Johnny like pulls the gun, yeah, yeah. and goes yeah, like all in. That is like the announcement that yeah. please shoot me. Johnny is just a bull in a china shop. He doesn't think of anything outside of like what's right in front of him, whether it be like pissing off a guy that he is supposed to be shaking down for money in a respectful way, starting a huge fucking brawl. Or constantly misleading people about when he's, whether he's going to pay them back money or not. You know who or he is? whether or not he's just going to beat some fucking random guy on the street. like, Or throwing some fucking firecrackers and shit from the fucking rooftops and shit like that. Because he's you, fucking drunk. You know who he is? He's Worm in Rounders. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, now he's he got to mace up his sleeve. Oh, he's, my God. He's just – he, yeah. like – wants to be a fuck up yeah he wants to be yeah. a fuck up it's his life yeah goal. he wants to run around and do hood red shit with his hood red friends and that's what he wants to do so yeah charlie should have like left him to the side like his uncle told him to it's like you know honorable men stick with honorable men it's like yeah no i don't know should have just and then there's that whole conversation that charlie has with though? with Teresa. He's fucking his cousin well he's talking with Teresa while they're on the uh the beach <laughs> And I think that he said something. He's like, how can you just, like, turn your back on your your cousin like that? It's like, you know, he he mentions this one saint. Like, he had it right. Like, he had it right. Like, that's the animating sort of philosophy of his life that he's just trying to do the right thing. And it's funny because when he uh, protests against Teresa and he's like, Mm -hmm. basically, he won't say the words, but he's like, nobody else will do this. Mm -hmm. So it's literally his claim to fame of something he knows he could do that's quote unquote benevolent. Right. But it also kind of takes me back to it's like uh, social self-flagiation. Yeah, and but I also the quote that comes to my head for whatever goddamn reason is uh, from Steve Jobs. Uh it's like the flip side of a conflict in that movie, but it's the soundbite from Seth Rogen's uh Wozniak character when he's like because it's right, you know, like there's really no reason why he should take care of Johnny Boy other than in his mind it's quote unquote right. right. You know? Like all signs point against the healthiness of continuing this situation, uh, this relationship, this but friendship. Like 
because, you know, of the Catholic guilt and whatnot, like, he's been told that uh, you need to look out after your neighbor and whatnot. But he's, for whatever reason, latched on to this one guy instead of trying to, you know, just for... He's his, his brother's his keeper. Man. And yeah. it goes deeper than just trying to help him because he also brings it upon himself. And we see it, not to take over, right, right. but one scene in particular when you see uh, them running away. I think it's from the rooftop uh, shooting and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are in the graveyard. And I think the cops are busting out, a busting a party in an apartment or just something kind of happening. But uh, Johnny Boy falls asleep. And in that moment... Harvey Keitel, uh, Charlie, could basically walk away and he could maybe get arrested. And I think all the problems could have basically been solved. He probably oh, wouldn't be killed, and at that, least temporarily. That yeah. seems yeah, actually interesting because there's a lot happening there, which is great because I feel like there's f- like three or four different possibilities of what's happening at that party across the street because either it's a bunch of people having a really good time there's a big fight that's happening or there's a woman being raped and there's this like really like Brazilian carnival music going on in the background. And it seems like Charlie just wants to like get down on whatever's going on there. Mm-hmm. Whichever of the three it yeah, is. Yeah. yeah. Man. <laughs> I really like the, uh, the cinematography in this film. I mm-hmm. do enjoy how the interior shots of the bars are are sort of orchestrated. It, it lands on trying to what it's trying to present. Yeah, there were some interesting shots in here. There was you know the opening like pan over the uh, over the bar. Um, there was the one dolly shot where you have like Charlie like dancing and stuff and like moving through the crowd. And I, I that's what's memorable to me at least. Also, what's particularly memorable are the fights that break out in this film and just how documentarian those those that that camera like roving around the actual like fight scenes like there's the one guy who kept on like when they were trying to shake down the guy punches him in the face and the one guy who was accompanying uh charlie and johnny boy who was either periodically like sitting down on one of the stools and getting the shit beat out of him or being pushed into the back of like one of the uh the the pull the pull cues and like breaking them and shit, and I was just like, that was really involved, like fuck them up, really involved fuck them up. I really enjoyed that, and like it just it, it was just fun to watch, and it just broke out of like a lot of times, and I, and I don't really notice that, or I don't remember that kind of framing for for fights uh, in a lot of other Scorsese films. I think like this is more indicative of a of a younger sort of experimental sort of approach to uh yeah, maybe maybe he had a couple of them in the gangs of new york but there's very few of that not exact like that. what's that not like that not like with the camera okay yeah no but i i, I think there's almost static shots same not in me. the sense that it's um in like things like goodfellas departed casino like mm-hmm. it's a a lot more gunplay and B, even when there is some kind of hand-to-hand, there's usually cutlery involved uh, pretty much immediately. If you take a look at, like, Casino with Joe Pesci and the pen, for example, 
that's not a rough scene in the way that it's like framed and like oh this I feel like I'm there. That's a rough scene in that uh, it goes from zero to sixty. Where what's fun about some of these barroom brawls is that they seem almost realistic to a fault in a good way mm. because these people aren't like trained in fighting and they're falling over themselves. Yeah. Right. Well, another thing about too what you're just mentioning, Nick, is that a lot of Scorsese's violence in these barroom scenes is so focused on the action that's happening, you know, in that very specific yeah. specific scene that you just mentioned, the pen scene in the early stages of Casino. I mean, he's focused on just Joe Pesci's face and the, you know, just way he's just shoving the pen and then a, you know, we get a close-up of the pen and the close-up of the guy's, like, neck bleeding and everything. So it's more, more way more interest on a tighter frame then here where, you know, like Dusan is mentioning, like you're just kind of angling down off of whatever, you know, boom you're on or whatever and seeing what is transpiring throughout the entirety of that, you know, quadrant of the room. Yeah. Not to mention that a movie like this versus this later is the difference between people who are good at being criminals versus people <laughs> who are not. You yeah. Know, which not being mean streets and mm. good being what The low-level thugs versus yeah. the people who are basically pulling the strings and like commanding those people to do that. Yeah. I, um, overall my broad impression of it is like, yeah, I enjoy this. I don't enjoy this probably as much as like, um, Scorsese's more like mature fare, like as he, as he moves on from this point, but I can totally see, uh, as has been mentioned before, sort of the gestures and the sort of like contours of what kind of filmmaker he would become, uh, later on in his career. And I enjoyed those, I, and I enjoyed the iteration of those sort of shots and those sort of um, sequences that just get improved upon as he gets better. Before, before we move on, Nick, I have a question for you, Dusan. Yes, please. I'm thinking of right now, and I'm just going to ask, because it is not a big part of this film, mm -hmm. but it is definitely prevalent, especially early on. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on how this film... Uh, thinks about race relations. Oh, boy. Man. Wait, why are you asking Dusant and not me? <laughs> um, I think that it... It's pretty subtle here, it's, for the most It's part. pretty subtle, but it works... Compared um, to his other movies. Yeah, pretty yeah. subtle compared to his other films, and I think it's totally plausible and just like... Um, I mean, it's totally believable with the type of characters that are like on screen and like working on this kind of stuff that they would at once lust for someone of like a different race, but at the same time stigmatize that. Mm -hmm. And just like, and they're just, and, and it, it comes from sort of this like very insular old boy, like yeah, you could look, but don't touch because like. We we stay with our own. No, I mean, uh, I was gonna say right? the rumor mill is going to like get turned up to eleven. Oh, if yeah. you I are mean, even considered to be right. thinking about right. something like that. Oh, she's hot. Oh, yeah, she's hot. But no, yeah. no, yeah, yeah. Not to mention too. I mean, the character of Charlie is already, uh, shall we say, a almost ostracized if someone were to find out that he's dating Teresa right. because of her epilepsy. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, even though she's perfectly in line as far as just, you know, Italian and mm -hmm. whatnot. Right, right. So let alone a person who is not even, uh, shall we say, afflicted with something like what Teresa, but is, quote-unquote, even worse because of the 
uh, race mm-hmm. and social mm-hmm. circle that's completely without uh, out of Charlie's reach. Which is, uh, but which, which is even more curious for the fact that like at least going off of like other Scorsese films, and I I know that I should more or less focus on this one, and I'm just like it doesn't seem like with this type of with this type of crowd, they wouldn't mind infidelity just so long as it still stays within those rough contours of what we're of what they're supposed to actually uh, pursue. And I'm just like, what the fuck is this? I don't know. I, I at least in the way that the culture is presented in this movie, yeah, there's already, I, shall we say, racism within their own circles. Oh, absolutely. So. I, I could kind of understand where a character like Charlie is coming from when it comes to not understand in the sense that I agree with, but um, I understand the thought pattern behind, you know, if we already start to draw lines in the sand of who's Italian and who's not, mm-hmm. uh, then, of course, it's, like, multiplied when it goes beyond that. Oh, realm. yeah. Um, but I was slightly, because I, I, this is my second time watching it, mm-hmm. I was surprised and but also very uh happy that there is at least a second scene with uh let's if we're talking about race in the film but with the dancer character mm-hmm. because the first scene you know is all from Charlie's perspective because mm-hmm. he narrates what he thinks about her and how he likes her but you know she's black so right. therefore he can't or anything like that but we do at least get another scene where she's basically in control of that moment mm-hmm. and and not giving him the time of day for the yeah. most part yeah. and I, I did at least appreciate that that yeah. um you know Scorsese I wouldn't say he's extremely progressive because he's not because especially in his uh, predilection for toxic masculinity and does he fancy it or is he commenting on it? I I think it's no, you know, men. somewhere in the yeah. middle where yeah. some people are very strident that he's always commenting on yeah. it. I'm like, ah. Uh, it's it's I, fucked up, but what are you going to do? Yeah. Right? That's, you know, that's, that's the, the, the... But at least for a movie from this era and whatnot, at least he had the... Uh, <laughs> at least the awareness to include uh, spaces in which Charlie does not control the narrative Mm -hmm. uh, about everything that goes on around him. One of the great things about Scorsese as a filmmaker, and this is probably best highlighted in The Wolf of Wall Street, and I know that's one of his most recent films, but he does have this really weird ability to both condemn and celebrate somebody at the same time. Oh yeah, he doesn't ever shy away from, I would say, the alluring uh, facet of criminality, basically. I mean, Henry Hill, um, obviously Jordan Belfort, uh, even everything with Sam Rothstein. Like, these are characters that would look appealing to the modern day, like how people in the you know 1920s and 30s they claim that they felt about El Capone is that he's this great uncle like figure who's yeah. taking care of people and this Robin Hood figure invasion. yeah but he's actually this fucking terrible person but yeah. he's you know you still build them up as this kind of cult hero in a way but yet they're fucking dog shit as people so yeah he he just has a really weird way to present the entirety of the characters, good and bad. Yeah. And Mean Streets, uh, in general, starts his trend uh, in portraying people who are 
within the criminal system who swear by the quote-unquote unspoken code mm-hmm. and hold up that kind of uniformity uh, and solidarity That's with the kind other... of honorable men among honorable men. Exactly, yeah, right. without seeing that that in and of itself is such a myopic uh, perspective that it it doesn't leave room for any nuance, and all you're doing is horrible shit. No, Nick, no, no, you're just not looking at it right. No, that's not what it's about, no. Yeah. Oh, yes. fuck you, no. Whoa. Hey. Hey. Whoa. 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 Hey. hey. Whoa. Toussaint, you're not white, so that is racist. Oh, I'm sorry. What's the matter with you? Oh. Um, Busting balls over here. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess if I go, I would say uh, that I love this film. Okay. Uh, it's oh. not my favorite Scorsese, but I'm. if I were to choose a Scorsese crime film, this is probably the one that's most up my alley. Oh, wow. I certainly have talked, at least somewhat, on this podcast, how I recently, at least, but have a predilection for this kind of era of filmmaking, mm. especially in this region and whatnot. Why is that? Uh, well, because it very closely infringes on uh, exploitation uh, uh, in its in and of itself. This and, is like art house exploitation. No, not art house. But I wouldn't say this art house. No, but just in the sense that there was a lot of films being made uh, in this uh, in New York City and in this era in which, on almost like a shoestring budget, uh, that were very much just kind of provocative plotless uh, romps of bad taste. And I think... Do you think that they were more devoted to conveying, or at least attempting to convey a sense of verisimilitude about, like, you know, the lived environment where they were filmed? I mean, I don't find a movie like this, for example, all that different from, like, a Doris Wishman uh, sexplo film from the late 60s, where uh, one of the very common uh, plot lines of any sexploitation, uh, nudie cuties or sex blows uh, from the late 60s, um, where a girl goes from a Midwest town to the big city and finds that life isn't all that it's cracked up to be yeah. with a very cynical ending. What? I know, right? What? And while Scorsese has a very mafiosa... Um, mafiosa! Focused... <laughs> uh, uh, lens, uh, it's not all that different from the grimy pictures that were being made uh, in a lot of other genres. When you mentioned New York and you mentioned this era, uh, was this around the time that uh, Deep Throat was made or not? No, this came out like pretty much the year, if not okay. a year off or whatever, but hmm. uh, depending on if you count like the premiere versus just how long it stayed in theaters. But no, this is basically when, for example, Triple X Hardcore Films were taking off. Hmm. We do see a shot of basically what's known as the deuce over on 42nd Street um, for a very brief second when they're watching movies. And at one point, there, besides the fact, and Scorsese tips his hat, I think, because besides the, f- and that's what's always made him a fascinating director, is that he is an exploitation filmmaker. People, I would say, only latch on to the kind of classicism of his filmmaking because, and I think this film kind of shows this in a nutshell and a contradictory 
the first film you see um, them watching in a movie theater is The Searchers by John Ford, always celebrated as one of the greatest films ever made, and that's John Ford, one of the most you know classical filmmakers of all time. The second film you see is a Roger Corman film. So, you know, this kind of dichotomy between something that's so, uh, you know, classically Hollywood and then something that's uh, way more kind of rough and raw and um, not for everybody and very reliant on uh, provocateurs type stuff, whether it's violence and sex, uh, that's pretty much Martin Scorsese for me in a nutshell. And I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, you see both of those films in the span of this movie. Um, but I, I love this movie. I think for one of his crime films, it's pretty great. I think the performances are fantastic. I love that we get to see Robert De Niro be, like you had said earlier, a Joe Pesci character, so to speak, um, before he would go on to be the more kind of, I don't know, mature character in a lot of his later pictures. But I was going to say, I mean, I think... Taxi Driver and Raging Bull were still towing yeah. the line, and then even like some of his. But in those things. two movies, they were trying to at least empathize with him. Yeah, here he really gets to be just nothing but an asshole. And then he's you know even further on, he's playing like the really weird villain in Cape Fear. That's like yeah, but that's a remake, so it's not even really his. No, but it, but it yeah, is. I know it what is you mean. Still him not, you know, following that very similar path that he followed for such a long time that then he tried to get away from and be a comedy actor and destroy his career. Yeah. But um yeah. No, uh, absolutely. It, it, he's giving a, a really, really strong performance here. Yeah. And I very much you know, I watch a movie like this and then I remember why Harvey Cartel was once considered a great actor, because I think he's fantastic in this. Um, but it really makes me wonder what happened to like a whole legion of actors from the seventies um, where if you give them about 20 to 30 years, they just became almost uninterested in acting in a way that like no other generation, because we have a lot of terrific actors who only got better with age. I mean, we're seeing a lot of things from people like, I don't know, like Richard Jenkins or something where like the older they get, like the more they can do no wrong or whatever. Whereas you, you take this entire league of people like, um, Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, all who have worked with, uh, has Al Pacino worked with Scorsese? I don't think so, actually. But in the same similar circles of genre and whatnot, Harvey Keitel, um, you know, all three of those are kind of the titans of that, you know, genre. Um, and they all just grew up to really not give a fuck unless they worked, I guess, with now, well, Pacino will work with course had the mm. Irish man's but I don't know, remember if he's worked with them before um and I, I just find it so weird because they all seem to came from the same I don't know twilight zone of uh 70s grimy crime epics and whatnot well Pacino and De Niro are always linked to the Godfather series yeah. so they're kind of and so are other people so is like Robert Duvall and people like that True, and but, he hasn't done anything like... Well, he's getting really old, good. though. Yeah. yeah, but even when he was old, he was doing things like Will Ferrell comedies and whatnot. Yeah. And... I mean, the this... I think the weird thing is that that era went through a really weird time in the early 2000s where like the, the idea of 
turning these older actors into shells of themselves is is it's such a weird thing like it's almost how like women when they got older were treated where they True. could no longer play characters of that ilk they had to play shells of themselves and be in movies like dirty grandpa and jack and jill well and that's the thing is like I, I i look at that though and like but they're also choosing to take those roles and i just wondered like they're choosing to get paid and i agree with that but at the end of the day is there a part of them and i always see this with men or at least i always think this with men that like wish the old days were back where they could play these characters that were just ultimate scumbags and not have i don't know i and sometimes I, you just get old and you just want to cash a check man i get that but there are at least some roles for quote unquote old the other thing people. about the two of them specifically is it's not like Morgan Freeman who's literally doing anything because he wants to get paid. I, that's a good example, I will but, say, actually. But, like, Robert De Niro's but only, he didn't only have making, like a, like, a movie a year or so. True. But he didn't... I would say Morgan Freeman got, quote-unquote, more famous as he got older. Like, yeah. no one really cared about Morgan Freeman as a young beau. Yeah, but he's known for things like Shawshank Redemption and Seven. Like, True. He's not known for these awful comedies he's True. making now. So. Well, he's in the bucket list. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I will say, uh, like, I have no doubt in my mind that if Marlon Brando was still alive, he'd be in an, an Adam Sandler comedy or something like that. Like, I mean, he was already playing that ridiculous character in the movie The Score. Like, he... I still have to watch that, actually. That's directed by Frank Oz, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's got, I'm telling you, It man, sounds fascinating. It's one of, like, this weird... I mean, it's this, Edward Norton, Robert De Niro? Yeah, Edward Norton, Robert De Niro, and Marlon Brando. Yeah, I, like, I it's mean... A, it's this weird, just... Yeah, we gotta watch ...collection that. of three titans from three pretty yeah. much different Jennifer, eras. Yeah. Um, and just, like, the demeaning that uh, Marlon Brando, who is, like a, like, a comfortable 350 pounds at this point... The just total demeaning that he gave to Frank Oz on set when he's playing just this minor character in this movie where he's just continuously calling him Miss Piggy and shit like that. Like <laughs> that's, that's so great. <laughs> um Yeah, I mean if Marlon Brando was who he was when he was like at the top of his game, like with uh, or at least at the peak and maybe downturn of like Apocalypse Now where he famously was awful to work with Francis Ford Coppola who was also awful to work with, um, you know, then of course I would totally expect that from him, you know, 30 years past his prime and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I'll get off that tangent, but there's just something about that. They're, they're all so related, I think, in the projects that they chose back then and roughly the projects that they're choosing now that while I do think that there is probably ageism obviously going on in Hollywood, uh, that, that said, there's still a lot of, very minor, but character roles for people their age that I just wonder. I mean, uh, but then again, maybe I don't want to see it because I thought fucking uh, Robert De Niro was the worst part of a horrible movie, which I thought at least, which was American Hustle. Uh, I genuinely, so maybe they just can't do it anymore. I just rewatched that not too long ago. You did actually. I remember. And I saw that on Letterboxd. I actually think the first 20 minutes is actually genuinely fantastic. Yeah. Um, just because everything surrounding the con artist lifestyle yeah. of Christian Bale and Amy Adams uh, was actually very good. And the more it got into like the storyline and the caper that's going on and Bradley Cooper and Louis C.K.'s characters and all <laughs> that shit, 
Yeah. Yeah, everything with Robert De Niro in that was just like like it's like it's like an it's like if like if like somebody paid Michael Jordan to play basketball now. Yeah. Yeah. Like like he would you would still be That's seen a joke. No, just in general like somebody yeah, wanted like to watch Michael Jordan celebrity. Yeah. Charity event or like, something. It's still him, but it's it's not him. Oh man, can you imagine that? Like if they paid him to do like a charity event where like the Bulls, whoever's on the Bulls now, and then he'd be on the court, and it would just be a quote unquote game for fun. But like the like awkwardness of like current day players who are certainly not as good today as Michael Jordan was no, back then. Yeah. School his ass. But are certainly better than what he could do today. I mean, just play the Harlem Globetrotters theme song yeah. in the background. But dude, 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 like, oh, Michael, you got this shot of it. Like, pass it to him. Nobody wants to to beat up an old man. Michael would need to play the Washington Generals if he wanted to win a game. Is Derrick Rose on the Bulls? Okay, that's what I thought. But I just piece of shit. That's how much I know about sports. Last time I saw Michael Jordan. Last time I saw Michael Jordan. I was at a Costco. Yeah, he, he was, was getting the free samples. He was he was fat, and he decided to grow that mustache back. And he, for oh. whatever reason, still likes that mustache. But he uh, he grows a Hitler mustache, so he shouldn't oh. have that anymore. Okay, he should get rid of that. Say what you will about Michael Jordan. <laughs> wow. No, I'm saying say what you will. <laughs> okay. But he never made a movie like Kazam. So I mean, Space Jam. Yeah, no, I meant that in a good way. Like, Kazam is a great movie, and yeah. What do you got against Space Jam? It's him and not Kazam. Him and you know, we Bill, should Bill we Murray. should do an episode on Space Jam. We should, should, we? should not. You should. We should do that. Really if we do an episode, we already put that in the bloodstream. You know what? On Space Jam, I'm gonna force Alex to do an episode on a movie he doesn't want to watch, but I really love and I really want to talk about. So we'll do that at some point. Uh, I was, that seems like a veiled this, threat right there. This yeah. is really random, but I brought like uh, the transcript. We've gotten way off topic here, that's okay. but that's totally fine for These this podcast. These streets are mean. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking not too long ago about a film that I saw in the theater when I was a kid uh, called Celtic Pride. Where these, what? Yes. These two white people oh. uh, who are big... Celt- I'm intrigued. <laughs> these two white guys who are Boston Celtics fans... One okay. of which is played by Dan Aykroyd. Oh, uh, are obsessed with the Celtics. So it's like fever pitch. Well, no, kind of, in that aspect, kind of. But there <gasps> is it a gay fever pitch? <laughs> no. no. Oh. oh no, the other one's played by Daniel Stern. Oh yeah. So, anyways, <gasps> anyways, uh, they go to Boston Celtics games every night, and they get very angry when the Los Angeles Lakers are going to come and beat them. So their plan is to kidnap the black player from the Los Angeles Lakers and hold him hostage so they can't oh. beat their team. And okay. the black player is played by Marlon Wayans, I think. Ah. And it's yeah, it's it was a really bizarre film. It's from the nineties? Oh yeah. Okay, I was gonna say oh, yeah. based on that. Uh <laughs> interesting. You know what I thought of the other day? It's a movie we both have seen uh in our childhood, but I was on Letterboxd randomly and I was reminded of the wonderful Kevin Bacon movie, The Air Up There. You remember that? Fuck yeah. Watch it oh. all the time. Man. I we mean, should do he... an episode. If we do Space Jam, we should do a double feature with The Air Up There because I think Toussaint would enjoy The Air Up There. Are you saying that because they go to Africa? No. <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> Kevin Bacon goes to Africa to find some ball That's players. Great. Okay, That's great. Okay, first anyway, of all, 
first of all, he drunkenly walks towards this screen during a charity event because he sees these Africans playing basketball in the background. Man, we really have to watch this movie. It's happening. He also, like, doesn't he, he, like, undergoes something to become part of their tribe so he can play with them in a basketball game? Oh, no, he's an honorary black person in that movie. That's great. I but like, just so you know, if you're like thinking this podcast of like going off the rails or anything, oh, if you're not has. listening to yeah. Film Tank to hear a bunch of uh, people bring up uh, movies like The Air Up There instead of the movie that we're reviewing, then you're listening to the wrong podcast. Sure. Yeah. I gotta tell you one thing. I will say is you never know where it's gonna go because That's very true. Uh, I would never have thought in a million years we would be talking about Celtic Pride in the air up there yeah. on this episode. During the episode. But here, but here we are. Concerning Mean Streets. Yep. Yeah. And by the way, it was Damon Wayne's, not Marlon Wayne's. Oh, oh, shit. Racist. Yes. Shit. Racist. Racist and incestuous. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, mean Streets, I'll finish up my opening thoughts. And to say that I very much enjoy this film. I um, I will say what I do find interesting about Mean Streets is that despite the fact that it comes so early in Martin Scorsese's career, it almost works as a, a synthesis of a lot of his themes, both that were touched on earlier in his career and much later in his career, because while it is certainly the forebearer of his crime family films, uh, there is also the extremely uh, dominant theme of Catholic, uh, Catholicism and Catholic guilt and whatnot, which is actually uh, comes out as early as his debut film, Who's That Knocking on My Door, starring Harvey Keitel. No. Uh, yes, it does. Oh, you're talking to something up there. Ah, man. Alex brought up the poster for the air up there. Uh, and, oh, I'm just going to read the tagline in case anyone doesn't remember. It's, uh, Jimmy Dolan went to recruit a new player. What he found was a whole new ball game. Ah, <laughs> uh, but Mean Streets uh, c- carries on the theme of Catholicism and whatnot. And I love the way Charlie's character kind of wrestled with it because as much as we see it in the beginning of him, uh, like in the church, it doesn't, like the church doesn't become a central location for him. And I kind of love the idea that he's more of a spiritual person than he is a religious one. Well, he says that in the opening line. The he film, does. That he's, you don't, you don't do it in church. You do it on the street. You do it at right. home. Right. Yeah. And, but what I love is that that hangs over the entire film. And yeah. so even though we obviously don't, not that we needed it, but we don't get scenes of him, like, at least once, like, going to confession or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, we're always kind of seeing his actions uh, through the lens of kind of reparations. Uh, I know you don't like that word, Jason. <laughs> I, I wasn't even going to say anything. It I know, but like, I listened yeah. to the previous episode or two episodes ago or something where I used that and you were like, nope. <laughs> Lord. So I was going to crack up. Uh, anyway. But I, what what was I going to say? About Catholicism? Yeah. It was like, yes. particularly in this case, like, I think it's really interesting how um, when he's in the church, he's talking about how for some other people, it's fine to just like go in and then go into the booth and confess your sins and do all the Hail Marys and shit. But it doesn't work for him. But it doesn't work for him. And I think that's very interesting that like, he's always in the midst of a, of a, of a quietly brewing spiritual crises in the back of his mind. Yeah. Whereas other people like in the case, like what he's 
talking about comparatively is that people are able to compartmentalize their faith alongside of their lived experiences. And I can't tell which one is more, uh, which of those two experiences is more, is one either more authentic quote unquote, and which one is more useful. True. I, right. And what's interesting about his quote-unquote uh, struggle is that it kind of defies what most uh, would see as, I would say, an Italian stereotype, which yeah. is devout Catholicism mm-hmm. and unquestionable faith and whatnot. So here we have him wanting to be a part of a, uh, a culture that he doesn't even buy into, I would say, the central morality <laughs> uh, framework of. Uh, and that's also why he makes poor decisions. Because uh, it doesn't absolve his conscience. Exactly. And what I like, too, is that, you know, because of that, it's what allows him, or I would say what provokes him to look after Johnny Boy and whatnot, because he almost makes himself out to be a martyr-like figure. Mm-hmm. Like, no one else is going to look after him, so therefore I have to. Right. And, He's his brother's keeper. Yeah, and, and like I said earlier, it's like taking care of Johnny Boy becomes kind of his one thing that he can point to to say, I'm doing good because nobody else is doing this. And it's, it's, it's almost like a numbers game for him because of all the bad things he may do as a criminal. And uh, all the bad things that Johnny does. Yeah, uh, but this is one that he can point to that nobody else is doing, so therefore or it must be worth something, and uh, and I find that fascinating. Um, uh, overall, though, I mean, I yeah, I just think it's a good, great movie. I I love what you guys have touched on. I the pool hall scene is one of my favorite sequences. Um, it it goes on <laughs> pretty long, but it's kind of all the better for it. It's just this ramshackle, uh, prolonged fight, and and that's kind of a lot of what's happening in this movie. Uh, as far as the phrase goes on too long, um, you take like the kind of bungled hit on the guy in the bathroom where the one guy comes into the bar. It was David Carradine, by the way? He gets that's shot right. at the urinal. By the way, actually, both Carradines were in this film. You okay there, buddy? I didn't realize that. Yeah, both Carradines were in this film, but I yeah. don't remember where uh, Keith showed up. But yeah. um, that guy, like, he stumbled for a while before his death scene. Oh up yeah, there. he gets to like, like he gets shot three in times, the bathroom, still going in the bar, yep. and then he gets out of the bar. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's such a bizarre, almost surreal sequence because not only is the kind of guy who's gonna uh, put the hit out. Not only is he basically just waiting for a moment because, you know, he's uh, the Carradine guy is uh, just drunk uh, out of his mind on the bar. So he's just waiting and whatnot. So not only is he just chilling, but then when he goes to uh, uh, do the hit, he lets his hair down almost like it's weird because it's ambiguous as to whether that's supposed to be a signifier to that character as to who he is or if it's an affectation that... It's almost like this disassociative identity of like who he is as a hitman versus who he is as a bar patron, you know. And it's never really clear because there's such. I mean, they're just in that one scene, and mm-hmm. I actually find that scene to be very weird and uh, powerful because of that. That it's this weird interlude that almost plays out in the background of the drama that is Charlie's life. But it's a good reminder that Charlie wants so badly into a life in which he is not participating at all on the same level of violence and other uh, degrading shit 
of the people he looks up to. It's like right. what is happening just both behind him is what he would have to do if he really wants to uh, ascend, so to speak. Um, but yet he's so enamored by it that he thinks that he can somehow, you know, move up while still being who he is as Charlie, which right. is that everybody likes Charlie. And, yeah. and then, of course, Johnny Boy gives him shit for that. And the which Catholic is, guilt that's on his back. Yeah. All the time. So probably a good segue yeah. uh, into talking about the very final scene. Yeah. Uh, which is obviously we hit on a little bit of Johnny Boy being a smug piece of shit. Uh, to someone who probably shouldn't be at the bar thinking he can just do whatever the fuck because he doesn't care, which genuinely seems accurate. And then, you know, the good thing about this film is that they are just kind of driving there and whatever. And, like, in a normal setting, like, I felt like the film was going to go on for at least, you know, 20 minutes after that. Uh, And then there's a literal drive-by shooting... Uh, that happens, and there's a bunch of shots that go off, and there's a lot happening. And I mean, again, this is probably a victim of the you know 1973 feature, where you know we have this guy with clearly like dyed ketchup flowing down his 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 body. Uh, you have like the quick editing in there, so you don't really see exactly what's happening. Um, and then we pick up the pieces once the car finally ride runs over the fire hydrant and finally crashes and parks but you know you have the murder of of uh johnny boy uh you have harvey Keitel, who's uh shot through his hand where he just keeps kind of staring down uh into that which is you know i feel like somewhat symbolic and then you have oh yeah because that's literally all he's doing throughout the entire film is trying to see if he'll get burnt by a fire yep. and see if it actually does hurt him yeah and, I, so anyway, not to cut you off, no, no. But, but that does tie into that. Um, and then you have uh, the girl, which I'm like, yeah, her name Teresa. Right you have Teresa, uh, who obviously is still alive, but that's so fucked up to have her hand through the windshield, and then they like have to like pull her hand out that mm-hmm. went through the windshield. Like that just that just feels like it would hurt so much. Gratuitous. <laughs> yeah. Um. Well, I mean, in, a little bit. Not in a bad not in way. Like a, but weird martin's or a weird quentin tarantino way oh, but, but i feel like it like lands on what it's going she's for more of a victim than either one of the other two mm-hmm. um, as far as being in that situation and whatnot yeah oh absolutely but also too she probably comes away from it like the least scathed of everyone obviously she's not dead yeah. um and just she has a mangled hand now but although with her condition if something like you know like a seizure or something would have would come on she would also be in a worse position oh, well, yes. without having anybody with her too yeah, so anyway. that, that's true but in but the yeah, no. in the sort of you know she's the only one who's literally not walking away as much as she probably is the one who's the best off like it, mm-hmm. Johnny Boy does walk away from the car and uh Charlie also does at least get out of the car I was going to say Johnny Boy walks and dies in yeah. a bag of garbage bags yeah. but I, I see what you saw means about the bags. kind of gr- uh, gratuitousness yeah. of her being this almost death like tableau of the position she's in Yeah that actually really reminded me of the final scene of Chinatown Oh yeah um Oh, yeah. Yeah. Thanks yeah. for that. And, uh, you know, just waiting for somebody. Ah, this is Chinatown. Ah, I'm just waiting for that to, you know. Ah, somebody. this is Chinatown. <laughs> See? 
Forget some... it, Jack. It's Chinatown. Piece of shit walking by with a transatlantic accent. Yeah, yeah Jack. It's Chinatown. Yeah, get over it. Yeah. Uh, what uh, about uh, it? That would make that movie better. <laughs> Forget about it. Uh, hey. Still, that one scene where he rips off that page of the book is just amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty great. Every time. Uh, it always gets me. There's a librarian and it gives me chills. <laughs> I'm sure. So I'm guessing you guys have similar thoughts of just enjoying that final scene is it definitely abruptly ends the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It... And they all go home. Yeah. <laughs> They all go somewhere. They all go somewhere. It's not quite the same thing, but it definitely gives me vibes of Easy Rider. Uh, or in terms of Tucson, I can understand Please. the season one finale of the Venture Brothers. Oh, um, yeah. That's what that was a period oh, okay. of. Okay, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but where I, I do like the idea that it's literally called Mean Streets, and so the film quite literally ends on a street, uh, and how no matter what, you know, they are driving away and. You know, Charlie wants so desperately to be in, but what he doesn't realize is that he is in and there's no way out. And and to kind of have that almost blind spot for something like that, and um, I think it's a very potent way to end the movie. Um, a quick comment about Johnny Boy. Uh, one of his worst moments that I absolutely love <laughs> is um, when he and Harvey Keitel have that kind of huge fight on the stairwell with Teresa standing there when he's asking, Johnny Boy's asking, like, when she comes, like, that uh, between Keitel and uh, uh, Johnny Boy and whatnot, that's a wonderful scene just as far as performances go, but. That's definitely the height of Martin Scorsese as, like, on the one hand, he's very accurately portraying a certain form of masculinity that in no way should be uh, condoned or anything like that, uh, but is unfortunately an authentic uh, portrayal of certain subsections of the human population. He's an authentic douchebag. Yeah, Um on the other hand, that's also certainly, I would understand, fodder for anyone who would criticize Scorsese for having characters, male characters, literally come into conflict and uh, duke it out over female characters who have no agency whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So, um, But that's it seems like that, that I think, unfortunately, is what gives Scorsese uh, value and power because... There's something to be talked about there, and uh, the performances themselves are great because, yeah, that whole stairwell scene from it escalating into a seizure for Teresa and uh, with the old lady coming to actually help, and but mm. also chastise, I'm sure, what she's seen a million times before between other guy, young guys in that neighborhood and whatnot. Uh, it's just a great set piece. Yeah, how about the uh, how about the first introduction we get to Teresa where? Uh, getting a very bizarre description of Harvey Keitel's dream where he's coming blood. Yeah. Uh, That's That's Catholic guilt in a nutshell. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Nutshell. Yeah. That face went you nut, but anyway. Um, But, you know, it's uh, great. That scene is great because I like how that bleeds into... Uh, into the uh, sequence prior where at first, for a first-time viewer, I think you don't know if it's an actual dream. like what, Because he's 
in the the literal time and space of the scene with Robert De Niro in that apartment, but then all of a sudden he's just it is moved on in, in an instant over there, and that's the first time you even like know that they're in a relationship and whatnot. Um, but the editing of that scene, I know, kind of startled Toussaint in a good way because then there's the uh, finger gun scene where he holds that up uh, to Teresa, but there's an yeah, actual gunshot. That was bizarre. And then cut to just another shot yeah. of, of their conversation. Yeah. And I I find it very striking uh, in a good way because it makes me very uncomfortable with the way I would say casual misogyny just drips out of these characters and how while it goes uncommented on because it's probably par for the course, uh, to anyone watching, and I think that's why Scorsese kind of extenuates it with the sound effect, uh, it's... It, I, I would just say it's aged very well because it's very uh, uncomfortable and it really uh, takes you out of the moment in a good way uh, where you're kind of watching something and uh, feeling the reverberations beyond just uh, casual conversation. So, but yeah, I very much enjoyed that sequence. So going to uh, final ratings, I uh, am definitely a fan of this film, and I uh, would give it a pretty standard rating that I would give films that I really like, which is three and a half out of five. Uh, I already said almost everything that I wanted to say about this film, so I'll pretty much just leave it by saying that um, just another very solid Martin Scorsese film, as uh, most of them that I've seen are. So moving on to Tucson. I would give this a three out of five. Yep, I liked it. I wasn't over the moon about it, but I think that it is a very capable film. And obviously, Scorsese has gone on to make more incredibly capable and great films. But I can totally see like where the uh, this is one of the earliest sort of pinpoint marks of indicating where he would go from here. Yeah. Yeah, I love this movie. I give it a four out of five. I think it is very much a foundational text for Scorsese as a filmmaker. And while, you know, he may make better films after this, uh, it's very much almost like um, the Casablanca of his filmmaking career in the sense that when you watch it, you realize that you've always had some of these shots and some of these uh, effects or editing ticks. Uh, in your lexicon, and you never quite knew where it all originated from, and, and it was this movie. And um, I love the performances. I probably find this to be my favorite of his crime films, simply because without Thelma, who I do think he's better off with, uh, we do get a slightly more unfiltered Martin Scorsese in this picture, and I kind of uh, like that language pace so to speak but I am um, I, I definitely agree he would go on to hone his craft to a ridiculous degree um, but there's something to be said about the raw power of a movie like Mean Street especially when you make it four movies in his career into his career um, at a time when he was making like one a year like really you know shoveling them out so for him to pretty much hit for what I would say a home run on this outing and then go on to make actual masterpieces uh, is pretty good career trajectory. Yep. So yeah, four out of five. Wonderful. So if you out there have any thoughts on uh, Mean Streets or any other Martin Scorsese films, always feel free to catch up with us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. 
Or you can find us also on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Film Tank Show. Uh, our next episode uh, is going to be on the new Brad Pitt film, which is Ad Astra. Uh, Brad Astra. Yeah, yeah. All kinds of fun wordplay things yeah. there. Nick's gonna, not going to see it. He's going to make a bunch of puns while uh, Alex and I talk hey, about hey, it. Hey, don't and shortchange me. I can do both. I was going to say, he'll still say more about it than we will, so that'll be good. Oh. Uh, that will be... Thank you. Mm-hmm. Don't give him too much credit. That's a, a very interesting science fiction film. I was going to say, we're in a position, weirdly enough, before we record the episode, where you two have seen this movie, mm-hmm. and I am not. Mm-hmm. What the hell, you guys? Yeah. That's how, on you, man. How That's on you. you. It is. Yeah. I had fucking family visit. Yeah. <laughs> So that'll be coming up on our next episode. Uh, You can catch that episode, this episode, and all of our episodes on FilmTankShow.com. Or you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, uh, and a number of other... Spotify? a number of other places. One of these days, I'll just remember that that's a place we're listed on without Nick having to remind me. Yeah, that's okay. I just find it weird that we're there, so I like to say it. Where are you? So all that coming up uh, on our next episode and also just any time you want with any of our podcasts that are on the interwebs right now. From Nick Cheney, Tuzan Egan, myself, Alex Diekman, as always, thank you very much for joining us here on Film Tank. Looking forward to catching back up with you next time. (laughs) 